This is Alar Podcast. So Sharon, who do you have in store for us? Well, we have a great podcast for you this month. We have Doogie McFadgen and Jill Chasemore from Isla Resilience Group telling us all about their activities during COVID. And on that topic, does anybody actually remember what international travel was like? So for those of you who do, we have some of the pupils from Isla High School on to talk to us about the amazing trip that they took last year to India with the school. So that'll be a really good one to listen into. I agree. Let's get right into it. It's Glenn. Our two special guests today took on new roles in the Isla community as we gradually became aware of COVID-19. This is Isla. We'd like to welcome Jill Chasemore, Dougie McFadgen, to our roving studio. We're going to start with Jill. You have been instrumental in raising an island-wide support group the Isla Resilience Group, and you and Dougie have been playing a key role. Well, originally in my old life, I was the development officer for Chit Chat, which is a support group for people with long-term conditions on Isla and Jura. I also coordinated the lunch clubs under my hat of Thousand Voices, TSI, uh, looking after older people. It was quite, there's quite a lot going on, actually. And what happened was, on the weekend of the 13th and 14th of March, it became clear that there was going to maybe be a lockdown. And so over that weekend, there was a lot of activity on social media, uh, lots of people saying that they wanted to volunteer. So... I went and I decided that I think I thought that because of my experience with volunteers, that um, I thought it was ideal for me to actually lead that and to look at coordinating the volunteers. Although it grew like Topsy's nose, it was huge. <laughs> I, after the, a few volunteers, then it, it sort of expanded to about 140 volunteers. And that is when Doogie came to see me on that Monday with Pat Farrington. And you'd also had conversations over the weekend. Yep. I I think you put something out on Facebook raising your concerns about what might happen on the island. Mm-hmm. And I'd certainly been thinking about that before as well, with my kind of ex-police hat on. You could see it coming. So when you put something out on Facebook, I put a Message on Facebook to let's get a meeting organised, let's have a chat. So, so Dougie, what did, what have you been doing before we know you now from the co-op? So what were you doing at the beginning of March? I was preparing to move house. So I was busy packing and working very part-time in the co-op, having retired from the police. Quite a kind of sedate lifestyle, which is... Not now, though. And then things change. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. change. I could see it coming. I've got an emergency planning background. I knew that we were two or three weeks behind me on Europe. They'd started to kind of lock down, especially Italy. And for me, it was a natural thing to try and protect Isla because it's an island. Then Jill, I saw this on Facebook, contacted her and myself, Pat Farrington, and Jill met before lockdown in your little office in Mm -hmm. the main street. And 
hatched a plan. And I welcomed them with open arms. Oh, yeah, you bet you were delighted. <laughs> it, was, it was a very lonely place that for, that first Monday morning, thinking, yeah. well, how do I coordinate this? So yeah. it was great that there was the three of us. I mean, we just hatched a plan, but well, yeah. we, we need feet on the ground, we need volunteers, and we thought we'd maybe get a dozen, 20 volunteers, which we could manage between us. But lo and behold, it ended up over 150. And mm-hmm. It seemed to come together very, very quickly. I think you find that with people you know, there's people you can, you can connect with, there's people that you work with really, really well, that you don't need to open your mouth, but you know what one another are thinking. I think we had that on day, yeah. we had that on day one. Mm-hmm. I'd worked with Jill before through the police and all that kind of stuff, and you kind of know people that you can kind of connect with, and there was no arguments, there was no mm-hmm. diversion of ideas, it was, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to put in place, keep it tight, keep it small. But between the three of us, we pulled another meeting together within a few days where David Gillis and Ina Glover came along. And that's when we started to think about money and we realised that this is going to be really big. We didn't want to be down the line of constituting, setting up a committee, because our vision was as soon as this thing's out the way, that's us finished. So what we, with all these volunteers, we decided that one of the things that is good about the community is knowing people on the ground. So what we did was we divided each part of Isla up into districts. So the districts each had then had a, a coordinator and then they had they were in charge of their volunteers and they knew exactly who the people were in their in, in their street, in their road, mm-hmm. in their crofts. Uh, so that is what worked really, really well, I think. That was decided at the very first meeting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way the police work. You kind of localise management and stuff. So it made sense for the likes of the, the, the Rins area, Catherine Urquhart, Jenny Minto, Bridge in the Rins South. They know everybody. David Graham up at the Kilmeny, Valley Grant, all mm-hmm. that kind of area, knows everybody. And already had a structure in place where he was, he was making soup for folk. So Port Ellen said with Alison McGilvery coming and volunteered. So it made sense to kind of organise a structure where you had your local coordinators that then recruited and organised. And then for us, we would coordinate the coordinators and have fortnightly meetings on Zoom, yeah. all that kind of stuff. And obviously, it just grew arms and legs after that. It, it did, really. Yeah. We're pretty confident we never missed anything. The people that didn't want to engage or didn't want support, they made that decision. But every day that the coordinators and the feet on the ground thought would benefit from the support, were approached. They were personally approached and it connected. They had that connection yeah. with people in the community. From day one, we tried to match folk with people that they knew really well, that they already had some sort of relationship with. Therefore, you've got that kind of trust already. And that's the beauty of Ireland. You couldn't have done that in Glasgow. So the motto of the group, spreading kindness, seems particularly appropriate to you, Dougie, because you weren't only the friendly face outside the co-op in Beaumore. You were able to move around the island more freely than anyone else. He was everywhere. Yeah, everywhere, <laughs> every day apart from a Sunday. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's where it made sense. I mean... I think it was because originally it was because of this this thing about handing money as well, uh-huh. wasn't it? Me being over the whole island every day and already delivering groceries to kind of regular customers, it made sense to to use me as the the kind of 
conduit to get this, the food out. So it made, it made it really natural and really easy. It's all about that connecting with people like the coordinators and having that natural fit. Everything just fell into place within a week. I think it was Jill that flagged up at the first meeting. I was personally concerned about folk having empty cupboards and oh. not wanting to go out. And, and who do I ask? And I'm scared to go out. Jill was concerned about the loneliness aspect, I think. She, she always deals with people who are maybe widowed and they're living on their own and the lunch club gets them out and engaging with other people. That was all going to come to an end. So we built in the phone calls. The, the volunteer would have up to five people that they would keep in contact with. If not every day, at least once a week by phoning them and asking them if they needed any help or additional support. I went to the door and spoke to them face to face. It just... It just it just fitted really well, and it was way ahead of what they were doing and, and on the mainland. And what has been set up here has been used on the mainland as a model that's been rolled out across the country. And so, also, they were just with Doogies, it wasn't just delivering the shopping. It's it's that social contact, as you're saying, mm. with with people. And you did even say that you have changed a few light bulbs. <laughs> I have. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're not supposed to get into people's houses, but they're, they're living them's pitch black. And so I've changed light bulbs, I've changed yeah. plugs, I've put the electricity meter sticks into the, you know, once they've been charged up at the post office, I've put the meters in. I've referred folk unofficially to the social work department, people that are really struggling. There's been formal support put in place for folk as well, including financial support. So it's not just uh, delivering the shopping. And how, how many bottles of hand sanitizer do you have? Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got about 300 left in my garage. <laughs> it's between five and 6,000 we've handed out. Because almost every household in the island's probably had three bottles by now. The, the likes of the Gallic College and Portmore, for instance, to, in order for them to start up, we had supply that we could give them. Because people even... The ambulance guys were supplying the ambulance service with sanitizer. In the first two weeks, we were supplying the hospital. They couldn't get any. It so the, the work, the work of the group is not just. It hasn't just supported individuals. It supported businesses, and other organisations. Absolutely, yes, yeah. totally, critical. Yes. Absolutely, and again, we're lucky we live on Isla Bruchladi Distillery. Fantastic! They were the first to step up to the mark and and provide spirit. To make the hand sanitizer, which Jamie at the soap shop has been formulating. The first batch came out at 65%, then the World Health Organization then said really needs to be 80%, so it all had to be reworked. And Jamie made us a sanitizer 80% with free spirit that Brucaladi paid their duty on the first batch, they paid HMRC mm. duty, they didn't care mm. about the money. And then with a spirit from Distel, who owned Bunahaven, and Diageo, who wouldn't like the woman, I've given us lots of spirit as well. So this island is dripping with hand sanitizer. <laughs> and because we've got the volunteers, that's your feet in the ground to go and give every single household that precious bottle of hand sanitizer to give them a wee bit of a comfort blanket in the days where you just could not get your hands on it. And I noticed that you did say that um, the group, even looking at my notes, the group was mentioned in the Scottish Parliament and also on. On, on BBC Alma. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to explain that to us? It was about in the third week, I think, and I was contacted by BBC Alma to do an interview about, about the resilience group. And I did the interview not knowing that it's 
of course, it's the BBC. So there I was having my tea and it came up on the BBC News at six o'clock. <laughs> so, so yes, we were, and I had lots of phone calls saying, was that you? Was that you on the telly? So yes, it, and it was great because it also advertised what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was good. Three days in a row, but, but that's because... I think because we reacted so quickly. Nobody else was doing what no, we were doing. Nobody was doing it, and that's what I kind of alluded to earlier on. It was picked up in the mainland and used as the model, and that's why the, the, the government, the Scottish government, contacted all the councils to try and put a formal volunteer system in place. But you'd already been up and running for well over a month by yeah. then. Mm. Well over a month, and it was running really well. At the height of your operations, mm-hmm. what... Tell us some of the things. Remind us of some of the things that the group was able to put in place. Well, hot meals. That was one thing that went out, which was, again, it wasn't so much people receiving the hot meal. It was the social contact that they had with people. And we worked out that uh, we put out over 4,000, 4,200 meals on a Friday. Um, about 350 people took did, took up the the offer of a hot meal on a Friday, and then there was soup on a Tuesday, yeah. and that was about the same. So that's an awful lot. And um, this also in, in enabled some of the businesses to actually get involved with helping the community as well. I know Doogie was actually delivering shopping sometimes 7, 8 o'clock at night. Yeah. <laughs> so, when I usually finish it at 4. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, the, the shopping was, was really well used. That was really well used. Uh, befriending. We've uh, got a lot of people who've made lots of friendships as well through, through, the, through, this, through the resilience group. Safety packs. So as I say, that yeah. recently uh, one of the things is that uh, when the lockdown supposedly started to come to an end, and we were trying to encourage people to go out shopping, it was really difficult if you've told somebody for three and four months to stay in the house because you're going to catch COVID, and then the next day saying, "Well, it's okay, you can go out now." So the anxiety levels were really high. So what we did was we put out safety packs, which has got uh, hand sanitizer again. Uh, face masks, uh, hand wipes, um, information. Information, for instance, what does the co-op look like now? Because it's all very, very different. So we put that, we put over 450, nearly five, no, 500 safety packs went out to people on the island as well. So, yeah, been busy. Well, we're all about well, able to do that because of the, the money the mm-hmm. folk were donating. It was a crazy amount of money. So I, I know that you don't want to focus on the money no. aspect of things, but it was, you know, it did enable you to, to do all this work. I believe there was a key role for South Island development. Yeah, well, in the very, very beginning, again, Alan Logan from Brucladi contacted me and said that uh, people from around the world wanted to donate to a COVID fund. And so I set up a GoFundMe page. Uh, that's what all it was going to be originally, the GoFundMe yeah. page, uh, which has been amazing. It's over £10,000 has been raised on that. And it's everything from people just donating £5, children donating £5 pocket money, to £250, you know, the big amounts from all over the world. So we got that money. And then we also were starting to get 
thing money in from Scottish government and the distilleries, and that is when SIDS took up the offer. They they're looking after it to administer it. They administered it because they've got staff able to do that. So it was good because they could take that away from us. We didn't have to worry about the administration of that fund. Well, yeah, I mean, SID have got two or three members of staff. They've got bank accounts. They know how to accept donations and they can facilitate that. It's all logged on spreadsheets and stuff like that. But the, the money became... Well, so much money that mm. we ended up setting up a finance, a finance committee mm. in order to oversee the budget. How, how we're spending it, it's, it's over £150,000. It's crazy. I mean, the food was £12,000 a month. The sanitizer was free, obviously, but the safety packs we paid for, leafleting, the signs that you see up all over the island now, the kind of purple signs, the safety signs, that's allowed us to pay for all that. It's been, and we've supported a lot of charities, we've supported people that challenge I try to open up like the cyber cafe and the Gallic College. We set up a really quick five day turnaround way where they could they could apply for it's just a single pay, a single A4 application, outline their project, how much you're looking for, cost it for us, and the, that ideal was you'd have the money in your account in five days in order that you could get up and running, in order that everything was really, really quick and people weren't suffering any longer than they really needed to. We were allowed to do that because of the people love Isla. So they were giving us money, so we had to put a structure in place to manage that money. We knew that SID had this this infrastructure in place, and they were more than happy to, to help. And it meant, the, it meant that the volunteer group could really focus on the, to be the services. We wanted to be responsive. We wanted to be to, to respond to, to need, um, and it meant we could concentrate on that. Use the agencies that are there already with that structure in place, so that we can react really quickly, and, and that's probably the key reason it's worked so well. It's because yeah. we can react immediately. You right. A social worker to the door the same day as as the the crisis becomes apparent mm-hmm. to our volunteers. That's how quick it worked. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to so many people who've appreciated the the contact and support from uh, from the group. Just small small touches, mm-hmm. yep. but it's been really important. So things have changed. Over the last few weeks, what's the group's focus right now? Well, I've said that we are still here. Um, we haven't gone away anywhere. Uh, although things are quieting down an awful lot, um, we still are. will be responding if there is a, a spike. So we're just keeping an eye on things at the moment, just in case we have to leap into action again. Um there are still some people who are having shopping done and there are still volunteers on the ground, which is great. And we want to keep as many volunteers as we can, but obviously a lot have gone back to work now or have got other commitments, but we, we still have, I think we still have volunteers in all areas. So we're still here. We made a kind of conscious decision to keep this up and running until there's a vaccine. So we're, we're kind of looking at a year anyway to have us in place, meeting regularly, in order that if there is another lockdown, which a lot of us think there probably will be, we can have that quick, reactive, the volunteers on the ground doing the shopping. We've got an online system now as well, which is very helpful, which will take a lot of the pressure off the volunteers. But uh, 
were ramping up the kind of delivery capability for the food and so on. We've still got a stash of welfare box supplies on the island. On the welfare boxes, uh, the welfare boxes, over 200 welfare boxes went out. And ju- that just goes to show that people did need them. And what is really nice to see that the welfare, Dunlosset Community Fund, who, who provide the welfare boxes, are now working with the community food store. And they're working together. And the, the, I think the AGM's coming up where they're going to formalise their working together. They want to be responsive as well to what happens if people are made redundant after furlough, businesses don't open, so they, they want to be responsive as well. well. We thought at the start that it would have been the older part of the population that would be struggling and the welfare boxes would, would, would go to support them, but it, it turns out that see the, the younger folk that are in between education and full-time employment who are maybe doing cash-in-hand jobs or working in hotels or doing... The holiday changeovers, that business was all gone. And they had no income. So it's those people, the people that are like 18, 19, 20, the welfare boxes tended to go to, to those people because there, there were folk on this island genuinely struggling. And there was that stigma, I don't want to ask. So sometimes we had to really encourage them to take it and then it becomes a weekly norm. It, it's changed their kind of outlook on life and... It's just about being a proper caring community, and we're lucky we had done lots of prepared to, to fund all that. It was mm-hmm. brilliant. Mm-hmm. It wasn't given as charity, you know. No, no it wasn't. It was a friend helping well, that's you it. out. Absolutely. Yeah. It was given with care, and mm-hmm. it goes back down to what the basic message was. We're just that we're a caring community. We all pull together. Yeah, we've all got different amounts of money in the bank, we've all got different circumstances, etc. But in these circumstances, it's a community that pulls together and People's pride and stuff all went out the window. Dunloss had said that they've got deep pockets, so fund whatever they need to fund. So why not bring all these folk together and, and use these offers of help? Mm. We're uh, ticking over. We meet every two weeks on Zoom on a Thursday at 10 uh, with myself, Jill, and the area coordinators. So it gives them a chance to flag up any local issues that if anybody's needing support, because we do have that relationship with as I said, the social work and other kind of local charities, I want your youth action, etc. Mm-hmm. All these partnerships have all been formed. All these different wee charities and organisations that never really talk to one another, like the Dunlossa and the food store, they never worked mm-hmm. with one another. Now they're going to formally constitute and become mm-hmm. one one body. So Dunlossa will fund the food store. It's fantastic. All these wee things have come out of this. So I think it's important to keep all that going. Yes, we are waiting for another potential lockdown. Money has been kept by. Should we need to purchase more meals or, or sanitizer and all that kind of stuff? So we've kept a wee slush fund by. What it's done, it's given, for instance, the co-op. It's grossly exposed their lack of online service. Mm. Now they're trialling an, an online delivery system. That's brilliant. It means the folk that are that are afraid to go out and venture into the co-op, can sit on their computer, the ones that are willing and able to do that, and order their stuff and get it delivered for free. And if they're not comfortable doing that, I'm coaching folk, but if they're not comfortable doing that, they get the family to do it for them. And the family can be anywhere in the world and can order their mum their food. It's, and, and that has come out directly of the COVID crisis and us here pushing the kind of need out in the community because it's the rural community that this is getting piloted mm. in. 
So there's, a, there's a, an awful lot of good come out of this. So it's important that we try and keep this ticking mm-hmm. over, keep the momentum going. We do think there's going to be another spike. The flu is a seasonal thing generally. I think Britain was lucky because this COVID hit here during the spring-summer. So that would probably have suppressed what could have happened during the winter. So we're anticipating a spike in the winter, perhaps on a lockdown. Mm-hmm. So we need to keep contact with all our volunteers. We need to keep the structure in place in case this does happen. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing just now. So we meet every two weeks and, and keep it ticking over. Both of you raised uh, points about this is assurance for everyone living on Isla but it's also reassurance for people who have family members on Isla. I've had I've had um, letters and emails from family members on the mainland uh, thanking us for looking after their mum or their dad, which has been really nice, yeah. Well, I've, that has been um, a very interesting conversation, and, and I've learned a lot of what's happening on Isla. Um, being one of the older generation, I have been locked away since March. Um, <laughs> but you're let out. <laughs> but I'm let out now. So it's, um, and it's really nice to know this is happening. And it's happening behind the scenes, quietly. Everybody, everybody knows it's happening, but we're not making a song and dance about it. So on behalf of Isla, to the two of you and, and the group, thank you very much. Julian and I, thank you very much for the both of you joining us today. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you. You are listening to This Is Isla, the people, places, events and connections of Isla and Jura. My name is Glenn. I'm known on the island as Mr. Glenn. And this is Julian Thurgood. But I'll also answer to Joe. We thought it would be interesting to, to learn about a trip that's already happened. So we're sitting here today with Maisie, Helena, Samantha and Russell. And Maisie, perhaps we'll start with you. Tell us about the trip. When did it take place and where did you go? How long was it? So we left for our trip around the end of June 2019 and it lasted for four weeks. And we travelled to Glasgow and then to Dubai and then on to Delhi. And, And Russell was saying to me, and I said, and how long were you in Dubai? And he said an hour and a half. Uh-huh. Not long at all. <laughs> yeah. So just what, you airport. just sat on the plane? Uh, yep, just on the plane off, like tried to get a bit to eat and then straight on to the next one through like security and everything. So Dubai wasn't the highlight? No, definitely <laughs> not. But I know that when you walk out of the airport, uh, you're just bombarded with Smells, senses, lots of colours, lots of activity. What was your, your first reaction? Maybe, Helena, tell, tell us about your how it felt when you arrived. Uh, well, the first thing was definitely the heat. Like, it was coming off the plane, it was 40-odd degrees. And walking through the streets, it was really hot. Just everyone was watching us as well, trying to take pictures with us, which was quite strange. <laughs> so oh. how, how many of you were there? Uh, 20 in total, including three teachers. So how, how did you deal with the heat? Uh, just, we bared with it. <laughs> Suffers in silence. Yeah. <laughs> and probably you weren't, you, you weren't staying in places that had air conditioning. Uh, no, not really at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Samantha, tell us about your, your experience on the, on the trip. 
Well, we arrived in Delhi and we were only there for a couple of days. And then we travelled up to a school project in the Kulu Valley, where we were renovating a school. And that was probably my favourite part of the trip, because we got to spend five days there and see the children every day and just learn a bit about what it was like to live there. And now that sounds like a slightly cooler place as well. Yeah, it was around about 20, 22 degrees there instead of 40. (laughs) So how did you communicate with the the people that you met at the school? Um, Well, most of the adults had some sort of English, but with the children, just most communication was just done through waving and (laughs) just saying hello, and we learned a few things to say to them. So what was the biggest thing uh, from that project at the school that you you feel proud of? Um, I think just everything we managed to achieve because when we arrived it was very run down but we did up some of the classrooms and the front wall of the school and just left it looking a lot better than when it did when we arrived. So so Russell, what what's your reaction to the trip? What was the biggest thing that you you remember about it? Well, the biggest thing I remember about the trip was the six-day trek through the Spitty Valley. And I was quite high up, so breathing was difficult. How, how high did you get? I was 5,000 meters up. And, we and you, started, you were carrying all your own stuff? Um, we had day sacks that we were carrying. And our backpacks were being travelled to the next place by car. Alright, so you had some helpers along yeah. the way. Yes. So, Maisie, tell us about what you remember. I know when the trip takes place, that takes, you know, that's the thing you're occupied with. But you must have been fundraising and getting prepared. What was the biggest thing that you remember about that part of the, uh, uh, the planning? Well, we started planning it two years before that. So we didn't quite know where we were going when we first started planning and fundraising. And then as soon as we knew it was India, we just started fundraising and researching about what conditions we'd be in and what we'd be doing, just so we could like prepare ourselves. We spent a lot of time fundraising at a lot of different events and everything. So how did you know when you had enough um, money, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, We kind of had like a spreadsheet that we just worked out and then it was literally just right before we went, I think we'd hit our like goal. That was really good. Mm -hmm. Maybe families helped out at the last minute too. I think so, yeah. I think, no, we'd done really well fundraising everything. We had loads of different methods, so it wasn't just the same type of fundraising for the whole two years. That's that's great. And when when the next trip comes along, Do you meet with them and exchange ideas and your experience, especially with, you know, the planning phase? Is that something that you've done, Samantha? Well, we, when we came back from the expedition, we gave a talk to the whole school about how it was and our experience fundraising to basically encourage people to go on the next one. But I think it's pretty much just up to them how they want to raise the money. And normally you pay for half yourself and then you fundraise the other half. So it's up to them how much they want to pay for and fundraise, and they'll just decide themselves. So, Helena, do you think uh, do you think it was worth it? All the work ahead of time for two years. Definitely, yeah. Just it's once in a lifetime experience. Mm-hmm. It was great to even have the opportunity to do it. It was amazing. 
That's great. Russell, what, what did you bring back from, from the whole experience? Just probably that um, we didn't realize how well off we were. It's been a real eye opener in looking at all the people in poverty in India and then comparing it and to what we have here. It was a lot. Do they have cows wandering the streets? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. Everywhere. I see, was, that was quite... Um, so it's not really that different. No, yeah. <laughs> no, we have sheep. We don't have cows. But it was uh, an eye-opener. As Russell says, it's always enlightening to see how people live. And you sometimes think how lucky we are in Scotland, in Great Britain, that we have what we have. Um, but it's, it's an experience, as Russell said, that you should... You should really go abroad and visit different countries because you can see their way of life is slightly different to our way of life. I think sometimes Europeans are mollycoddled because they have the resources, whereas you go to India where you, you have people walking the streets with sandals and uh, walking the streets with cows and you don't see that. Uh, that sort of thing on Isla. The only thing you see wandering the streets are the sheep who are let out <laughs> but by pure accident, whereas in places like India, it's a norm. So it is an experience to go somewhere different. So, Maisie, do you think you made a difference? Yeah, because it's not only our eyes that were opened, we also taught them things. We showed them different ways of doing things as well. Even just the people we lived with while we were away. We were interacting with them and just telling them about where we lived as well as them telling us things that we wouldn't have known. So, yeah. Helena, what do you, what do you remember from, from the trip that sticks in your mind? Everything was amazing, but again, the trek as well. I got the opportunity to do that and it was just amazing. Meeting all the people, as Maisie said and seeing how they actually lived compared to how we live was quite amazing too. So you spent all that time planning the trip and then uh, you're four weeks away together. At the end of the four weeks, were you ready to get away from, from everyone else or did it make you even closer as a group? Yeah, I really missed them when you weren't with them. Like, you make so many more friendships when you're stuck with the people. You don't just put up with them because you're with them, you actually get used to being around them so that when you're home with your family, you're like expecting the people you spent the last month with just walk through the door, just have a chat with you. It was strange because I don't think we ever had a night where we spent a night in our own room, like in a room alone. You were always with at least two or three or four other people. So it was strange to just come back and have to sleep in an empty room because you missed everyone and we all got so close. That's great. And now that, now that you're back, you've been back, and they're going over to China and Mongolia, have you spoken to the group that are going? I think it was just do your best to get the most out of it that you can. Take whatever you get offered and try and do every activity and opportunity you get so you get the most out of it, because it's a long planning, so you want to try and make the best of it. One, one last question. Uh, you had three teachers with you. What do you think they would say about their experience with the trip and dealing with, with all of you for four weeks? 
I think they enjoyed our company. Just we just did you meet their expectations in a good way um, or a... Not sure, but we like to think that we meet their expectations in a good way. That that's a good that's a very good answer. We'll finish anyway. We're very grateful to the four of you for joining us and obviously speaking about the the your visit to India. We've been talking to Maisie, Elena, Samantha and Russell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Sharon McCarry. You've been listening to This is Isla, the people, places, events and connections of Isla and Dura. And we invite you to join us again next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Isla podcast. Our theme song is Swift Crown Cashback by Facebook.